Thank you, Senator Johnson, and it's a privilege to be here with my esteemed colleagues. So, as you said, I'm a critical care doctor. I practiced in the ICU for 35 years until recently, and until my job was terminated. Uh, I've been treating COVID patients in the ICU since March of 2020. I've treated hundreds and hundreds of COVID patients. So what I need to tell you is that between four to 10% of symptomatic patients with COVID-19 have required hospitalization across the world. With Omicron, it's about 2%. In this country, 4 million patients have been hospitalized with COVID, and of those, 850,000 poor souls have died. 850,000 people have died. These have been unnecessary, needless deaths. The NIH guidelines for the treatment of hospitalized patients for COVID include remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. Consequently, almost every single patient in this country, almost every single patient in this country is treated with the combination of remdesivir and low-dose dexamethasone. The POM study group investigated four drugs for the use of Ebola. The results were published December the 12th, 2019 in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that date is particularly important because that signaled the beginning of COVID. The data safety study, monitoring board of that study terminated the study of remdesivir, terminated because remdesivir increased the risks of death and renal failure. It was such a toxic drug, the data safety monitoring board terminated the use of remdesivir. Yet, in January and February of 2021, the NIH and the ACT-1 study enrolled patients in a study looking at remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19. The last patient was enrolled April 19, 2020. 10 days later, 10 days later, before the study had actually terminated, Dr. Fauci sat in the, in the Oval Office of the White House and he said the trial was good news. What Dr. Fauci did not tell you was that the primary endpoint of the study was changed halfway during the study. We all know that is scientific misconduct. Because the study was not going to be positive, they changed the primary endpoint. The original endpoint was an eight-point ordinal scale that included death and a requirement for mechanical ventilation. Knowing that remdesivir would not affect those endpoints, they invented a bogus endpoint called time to recovery, which they showed in this study was statistically significant. And based on this bogus endpoint, remdesivir was approved by the FDA on October the 20th, 2020.
So if one does a meta-analysis looking at the studies of remdesivir, the two studies which were sponsored by Gilead show a reduction in mortality. However, if you look at the four independent studies, including the large study by the WHO, it shows the opposite effect. Remdesivir increases the risk of death. Let me say that again. Remdesivir increases the risk of death by 3%. It increases your chances of renal failure by 20%. This is a toxic drug. But just to make the situation even more preposterous, the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill if they prescribe remdesivir to Medicare patients. The federal government is incentivizing hospitals to prescribe a medication which is toxic. So, it should be noted that remdesivir costs about $3,000 a course. Dr. Corey spoke about ivermectin. Ivermectin reduces the risk of death by about 50%. It costs the WHO two cents. Two cents. So as regards dexamethasone, this is the wrong drug in the wrong dose for the wrong duration of time. Yet every clinician in this country will absurdly use this homeopathic dose of dexamethasone. Why? Because the NIH tells them to do this. So what the NIH and other agencies have ignored are multiple FDA-approved drugs. These are FDA-approved drugs. These are not experimental drugs, which are cost-effective and safe and have unequivocally, unequivocally been shown to reduce the death of patients in the ICU and in hospital. For example, there are 25 high-quality so people complain about the quality of these studies. So if you select out the high-quality randomized controlled trials, they show that ivermectin reduces the risk of death by 26%. This is an extremely safe and cheap drug. In fact, it is one of the safest drugs on this planet. You are more likely to die from taking Tylenol you are more likely to die from taking Tylenol than Ivermectin, yet the FDA calls this a dangerous horse deworming medicine. So we have a whole host, as Dr. Uso and other clinicians have said, there are a whole host of drugs that have been proved highly effective for the treatment of hospitalized patients, including antiandrogen therapy, spironolactone, phloboxamine, nitazoxamide, melatonin, vitamin C, and I can go on. So the question is, why? Why have cheap, safe, and effective drugs been ignored for the treatment of COVID-19, which could have saved maybe 500,000 lives? 
And I think Dr. Corey has told us exactly why. Thank you. Thank you. The most important factor in determining progression of diseases symptoms is viral load. The viral load in your nose and pharynx is really important. So that's where the ACE2 receptors are. That's where the virus replicates. Many, factor, many factors affect the viral load, as we heard, secretory IgA. But it kind of makes sense if you know where the virus is, kill it where it is, kill it. And we have oropharyngeal and nasal sprays that will kill the virus within five seconds. Why aren't we doing that? I travel with my own little nasal spray because I don't know when I'm going to be infected. I spritz it in my nose. It is a simple, cost-effective way to control the virus. Just squish this in your nose. Okay, well, well, the NIH tells you to go home, take fluids, take Tylenol, and you stay at home until you get blue, and you can't breathe, and then you go to hospital, and then they isolate you like a prisoner, give you remdesivir and dexamethasone, and then you die. That's the NIH recommendation. No, we'll, get, we'll get to that phase. So obviously here, what we're saying, and Dr. McCulloch has said this and all we've said, this is a treatable disease. COVID-19 is a treatable disease. But what's critical is timing because of this viral load. You treat early. You don't wait for the test. When patients have symptoms of COVID, you treat them like they have COVID. And there are effective treatments to treat them. So, so I can address this personally because this is a personal issue for me. So just to make the point that what's happening now is completely unprecedented in the history of medicine and across the world. We have the federal government, we have state agencies and hospitals telling doctors how to practice medicine. They're interfering with the sacred patient-physician relationship. They are telling doctors to be doctors. So I can tell you what happened to me. So I was using our protocol to treat critically ill patients in the ICU with a whole host of repurposed drugs. I then, this is a memo. This is a memo sent to the entire healthcare system, but they targeted me personally. And what did this memo say? This said, I can use remdesivir, and then I will quote. There was an added section. Do not endorse section, which includes medications that may cause harm, and efficacy is not supported in peer-reviewed published RCTs. These medications will not be verified or dispensed for the prevention or treatment of COVID. This list includes ivermectin, bicalutamide, etopsicide, fluvoxamine, dutesteride, and finasteride. And then just to stick it to me, they added ascorbic acid. <laughs> Otherwise known as... System was effectively Vitamins. preventing me treating my patients according to my best clinical judgment. And then how did this progress? I objected. So the first week I was in the ICU, I didn't know what to do. What was I to do? My hands were tied. As a clinician for the first time in my entire career, I could not be a doctor. I could not treat patients the way I had to be to treat patients. I had seven COVID patients, including a 31-year-old woman. 
I was not allowed to treat these people. I had to stand by idly. I had to stand by idly watching these people die. I then tried to sue the system, and you know what they did? They did something called peer sham review. It is a disgusting and evil concept. They then accused me of seven most outrageous crimes that I had committed and that I was such a severe threat to the safety of patients, they immediately suspended my hospital privileges because I possessed I posed such an outright threat to these patients. Ignoring the fact that under my care, the mortality was 50%, those of my colleagues. I then went on through the sham peer review. I went to a kangaroo court where they continued this, and the end result was I lost my hospital privilege and was reported to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So here I was standing up for patients' rights, and this hospital, this evil hospital, ended my medical career. So that's what they do. It's an outright outrage. It's evil to the core. What? Uh, why? Merrick, why, Merrick, why did they do that? Just one second. Dr. Merrick, did any of those cases that you were reviewed on, were they non-COVID cases? Were they pneumococcal pneumonia cases or staph sepsis where you used a broad range of your clinical skills? These were all patients with COVID. So it was specific to COVID not any other condition where you would use your broad range of clinical skills. It was only on COVID Absolutely. that I was the review was applied, and it was applied in a way that was basically expressing and advising therapeutic nihilism, which means for the American public, therapeutic nihilism means the denial of treatment in patients in need. This is the document which was sent to the entire healthcare system which is the COVID-19 Comprehensive Treatment Guideline, which specifically was targeted at me, preventing me from prescribing safe, effective, off-label drugs. It's unprecedented in the history of medicine. The hospital is telling me how to practice medicine. They're denying me the right to use safe and effective drugs and lying because they claim to be as you can use safe, effective, off-label drugs for other conditions outside COVID. Absolutely. Yeah. If this was pneumococcal pneumonia, this wouldn't be an issue. This is specifically for COVID. So, so, so let me ask the question, how, how has the hospital treatment of patients advanced, improved over the last two years? So, sorry to continue. So it's a terrible thing for me to say. I, I'm an intensivist. I've worked in the ICU for 35 years. Hospitals have become dangerous places for sick people. Patients must do whatever they can to avoid the hospital. When they imprisoned in a hospital, they denied their rights. They are not allowed a patient advocate. Their family are denied access to the patient. They are prisoners in the system. They have no rights, and they get the treatment dictated by the hospital. They are dangerous places for sick people. And that's, for me, as a physician practicing hospital medicine for 40 years, saddens mm -hmm. me to the core. Yeah.